Today is Wednesday. It's September 13th, 2023, and it's 2.44 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Portions of this broadcast Saturday night at 8 on WGN Radio. And the gang you're about to hear on stage at Second City, Tuesday, September 26th, 6 to 8 p.m. Get your tickets at WGNRadio.com slash rascals. One other note, you can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. Hi, it's John Hansen from WGN Radio, Block Club Chicago, WCIU-TV, and the Chicago Blackhawks. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute, and you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Brandon Pope, host of On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago on WCIU, and the Making Podcast on WBEZ. I'm Eric Zorn, the author of the Picayune Sentinel, a Substack newsletter, former columnist for the Tribune. We got a lot to talk about today, but when we were trying to figure out what topics we would hit just before we broke from the video pre-roll to this podcast, Brandon said, you guys want to talk about Justin Fields and the Bears? <laughs> I sure did. You can't give up on the guy yet. Come on. He's, he, there's one game, you know, the, the play calling was bad. He got a receiver that ain't playing really at all with zero effort. He might as well quit. Um, you know, I, he had the he had the fourth largest QBR last year. That's Mahomes, Josh Allen, and and Jalen Hurts. That, that's pretty good company. His so quarterback rating was that high. I time. didn't QBR quarterback rating. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's, that's pretty I good. It, I thought it was in his seventies. I thought his career his career QBR is somewhere in the seventies. Career wise, yes. I'm saying last season. Which is that first season was bad. That's fair, but <laughs> uh, how worrisome is this to you, Brandon? His career record is five and twenty-nine. Uh, it's worrisome, but that's worrisome for the Bears. I, I, I just we can't put everything on this young man. This team is made with uh, a bunch of popsicle sticks and glue. It is a terrible, terrible team. There's really not a lot around him. The defense is awful. Uh, he really only has one number one wide receiver right now. Um, and the offensive line still feels patchwork. He, I, I got to give him credit. He is taking accountability for the play calling in that game when he shouldn't. The play calling is really the, the reason why they lost to the Packers, not because of Justin Fields. So the plays I, they should have called for were more touchdowns. John, what they should have done, <laughs> when they go into that huddle, they should say, okay, touchdown on two. Ready? Break. <laughs> I, I never really got the optimism. I tried to stay quiet because everyone else, even at our station, John, seemed to be really optimistic. And yeah. maybe the season turns out great. But we had the worst scoring defense last year, and I don't. Yeah. I know they made some fixes there, but that still seems suspect to me. I just think this feels so bad because not only is it the Packers, but it's the Packers with a new quarterback. And this was supposed to be the page-turning game to the new era of Bears-Packers, and it was, like, worse than the last one. All right, that Long con- way to go. That concludes Bears talk. I'm a little confused <laughs> about the banning of book bans in Illinois. For no apparent reason, Alexei Genolius, our state treasurer and librarian, testified at a Senate hearing this week about this law that goes into effect here in January. We will be the only state with a law that would halt public funds to libraries if they restrict materials because of partisan or doctrinal reasons. I'm not even sure what I just said, but (laughs) Public libraries are not to ban books for partisan reasons, and if they do say they lose their government funding. Both sides of this issue seem to agree that there should be some restrictions. Children should not have public access to some material. Janulia seems to be saying that's a decision best left to parents. Republicans seem to be saying that locally elected boards or local librarians should decide. I seem to be saying both of them are kind of right. It's a really tough one because – It seems like overreach solving a problem that doesn't quite exist. Like I'm always about, you know, if a local government wants to do this or that, they should have the power to be able to do that uh, to a certain extent. But we do live in a very strange time. I think it'd be naive to not realize that there are sort of hostile takeovers by spirited people for small public libraries all across the country and in the state of Illinois, uh, no exception either. And maybe that's the fault of voters for not standing up and not letting those people take these offices. But there's no doubt that far-right folks have really lined up for these jobs and been put into these jobs and are making a concerted effort to get as much 
LGBTQ plus content out of the library. And that irks me as someone who, you know, read things in a public library that made me not feel so much different than I felt at the time, because I would sneak to certain aisles and read certain things and go, okay, there's someone else that feels like this at some point. Um, And that was important to me. But I do see the criticism of it maybe being a little bit of an overreach. And ultimately, what politicians are going to make the decision that they want to take out of politicians' hands? It's a little, it's a little strange. I don't understand what a a partisan or doctrinal reason banning a book is. Exactly. I mean, is if you're concerned that the sexual content is too raw for middle school kids or whatever reason you're going to give, is that partisan? Is that doctrinal? Is that moral is it common sense is it busybodiness i don't know i mean it, it gets into trying to define people's motives in a way that i can't i don't think i can tease out very, very but well. do you th- but eric there would you agree there are some books that should not be in a public library where a third grader oh. can stumble onto oh obviously yeah obviously okay. there are- and then who should make the decision about where those books are shelved or are they shelved at all well, I don't think Alexi Janulia should, and uh, and I don't necessarily think that individual parents should have that right to uh, control what's in a library. Maybe a parent board or a library board can make that decision. Which, uh, given lately? That, given, well, I mean, given that, that the decision like that has to be made because there there's material that's purely pornographic, right? That doesn't belong in the, in the any library, any public library. Uh, so when and there's hate material that doesn't belong in a library. So given that you have to make those decisions, really the question is who makes the decisions. I, and I, I hear that Janulia is trying to get around allowing people to make that decision. Which, which I mean, I don't understand how that how that happens. How do you how do you separate you know a white power pamphlet from Amelia Bedelia or something? I I don't know who <laughs> makes that call. Right. All my reasons are doctrinal, by the way. That's how I describe them. But the so the point on who decides is really important because in the Janulius bill, the ban on book bans, it essentially uh, transfers authority to the American Library Association. Or so you can either adopt this bill of rights that is written by the American Library Association, or you can develop your own written statement that prohibits the practice of of banning books and other materials. And that that those rules run into the exact same problems that you're talking about, Eric, like what is doctrinal, what is partisan, right? The irony is the American Library Association, even though that sounds like the best association in the world because we all love libraries, it acts sometimes in quite partisan and doctrinal ways. And in fact, the president of the association, Emily Dabrinsky, was speaking in Chicago during Labor Day. We had a large, I don't know if this made the news, but we had the biggest socialism conference in the country in Chicago on Labor Day. It's called Socialism 2023. And she was a keynote speaker at that. She has very distinct political beliefs, which more power to her. But to claim that the association is somehow above these these partisan or doctrinal uh, things, I think, is is probably a step too far. Now, all of that said, Janulius looks great in contrast to being questioned by like a Senator John Kennedy saying the most ridiculous things that he can possibly say, of course. Right. So that the problem is we have to see between kind of the, the problems with with both sides and that uh, that kind of circus that took place. Well, Kennedy was reading from one of the books, but he was trying to make the point to Alexei Janulius, like, OK, what about this? I pulled out of him and kissed him while he masturbated. He asked me to turn over while he slipped a condom on himself. Senator, with all due respect, the parents absolutely have a say. My parents were immigrants, came to this country. We never checked out books without our parents seeing what, what books we were reading. They encouraged us to Mr. read Mr. Secretary, books. I understand this is good for your politics back home. It's got nothing to do with my I'm politics. Not, no, my bill is passed. Of course it does. My it bill every, is passed. has everything to do with your I'm politics. Here, I'm here to... But you came here with a problem, and I'm trying to understand the solution, and you don't have one. We solved the solution. Other than, we solved other the than, solution Other than Illinois. to tell us that we don't agree with you, you're on the wrong, we'll be on the wrong side of history. We solved the problem in Illinois. I don't think Janulius or that hearing really resolved the issue about that book per se. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Gender queer, yeah. And what 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 about that book, John? Well, that book talks about sexual encounters. It uses words that I think a lot of parents may not want their kids to hear. But I don't think that means that book gets banned from a library because there's there's a lot of books that talk about men and women getting together and having sex 
or young teenagers of opposite sex getting together and having sex. So I have no objection to gender queer being in a library and opening up a conversation for people. But I don't know if this bill resolves that specific issue. And a key thing, John, to add, too, is like if I'm if I'm uh, correct here, that scene in particular that Kennedy was reading was detailing what the author was talking about with sexual abuse or sexual abuse that he had experienced. Those conversations are important to have in classrooms about consent, sexual abuse and things like that. I don't think any parent or any any legislator or anybody's actually advocating for sexually explicit content to be available to fifth graders. I don't think that is I don't think anyone is pushing for that. I, I think people are just pushing for a line. What is the line of banning? We're seeing this country move and we're seeing politicians move closer and closer to a form of fascism, a form of government controlling everything in your life, even though that used to not be the Republican perspective at all. And so if you're not going to trust people who their whole career is about understanding books, understanding the content of books, librarians who get masters in this, get doctorates in this, if you're not going to trust the experts on this, then what are we even doing? And so that's what I think the, the battle really is about. Parents should ultimately be able to decide what their kid can read and what their kid cannot. I was not allowed to read Harry Potter growing up. My mom had a very strict rule about that because she believed that, um, you know, in the Christian faith, that witchcraft and wizardry was a form of demonic stuff. I disagree. And eventually I read Harry Potter. But, you know, at that time, that yeah, was my look mom's what happened. <laughs> look, look, but she didn't call the school and, you know, demand they ban the book altogether for the rest of parents. That was her decision as a parent. That was her local decision within our household. And we stood by it. So I think that's what it should ultimately come down to. I mean, I could buy a book that teaches me or read a book in the library that teaches me how to make a bomb that takes me that teaches me how to make a ghost gun using a 3D printer. So. I think the I think Brandon brings up a I think all of us agree it's all right I don't want to speak for all of us but I would err on the side of let most of the books in the library and if your parents are so concerned that you might learn something different from what your belief system is then keep your kids out of the library but it shouldn't stop the rest of the kids or the adults who want to explore or learn something different and fiddle through a library from being able to do that even if the material may seem a little bit offensive to someone but I think we should allow for the possibility that these people aren't fascists, that they're sincere in their beliefs, that some books shouldn't be on the shelves or some material shouldn't be accessible to maybe fifth graders or second graders or ninth graders. Maybe those are different books in different sections of the library. But if you want to at least believe for a minute, and this is their defense, and I think it's reasonable, that they're, you know, we get labeled as book banners, they say, and now we can't win. Well, what we're really trying to do is just exercise some local control. The same way you get to vote for a congressperson who I think is insane, but I'll defend your right to have Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or, or Boebert or any of those guys represent you, Maybe so, too, a library board should be able to make local decisions. And then you and I go, well, I'm not going to go to that library because they don't have the books I want or I resent that library. I mean, maybe that should be a local decision and and we shouldn't judge their motive. Maybe they're sincere about it. And and we can draw the line somewhere like, OK, so Harry Potter and Judy Bloom should be on these shelves, but maybe some things shouldn't relative to that local body. It's great in that world you painted, John, but these meetings are being hijacked by people that are not part of these communities. It is part of a larger effort to stuff meetings with outsiders. Yeah, I know. To try and and, and, and and so like, yes, I agree with you, John, in that perfect world, but that's not the world we live in right now. Well, but then who is... Can a brother get an amen here? I mean, it would seem to me like, who is me? I gave you a hypothetical amen. <laughs> I wonder if this whole thing kind of isn't it a, a concocted controversy anyway. Are some children so curious to learn about something, they're going to libraries going, ah, oh, darn, I can't find that book, when the whole internet, the whole world, Amazon books, I mean, really, is are, are children really being denied affirming literature? John, maybe it sounds like you were, but uh, but I wonder how 
real this crisis is. Well, then on the flip side, are children really being exposed to so many things that they aren't seeing on their phones any day anyways? That argument works both ways. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely true that, that you can find just about any horrible thing you want on your phone, as well as a lot of improving books and so on. There's there's lots of material there. So, yeah, the question is, is are, are we making libraries the, the focal point of this conversation, even though if a kid wants to see pictures of, of same-sex couples uh, in flagrante, they can go online and find that very easily without having to... That's what I searched as a teenager, by the way, on Google. <laughs> See, that's, that's the problem right there. You are uncomfortable even saying what you are talking about. And now we're going to throw that in front of a fourth grader and say, here, be affirmed. I say, no, that should not be on the shelves. <laughs> Look, these fourth graders can scroll through TikTok and see titties. So at this point, like, is it really good? Parents are being a little overly cautious. I like, John, I like what you presented about local library boards. I think there's already stop gaps in place. When I was a kid growing up and going to the Cincinnati Public Library, I couldn't just rent anything. I couldn't just check out anything. There were warnings. There were things you had to have parental approval to actually check out. So I think you can have little stopgap measures that can be kind of a compromise, but it's the banning altogether of these materials that I think is just really just extreme. There's even some that want to ban To Kill a Mockingbird. What's the line here, and when, who's going to decide what that line is? Yeah, and it, it isn't always just conservatives who want to keep material away from people. I mean, there's, there's certainly uh, you know liberals and lefties who want to keep certain texts away from, from children, certain ideas away as well. This is not just conservative blue nose is trying to pr- pr- protect our children it's it's uh it, it goes both ways great example is a uh, uh, mind comp you know it's funny at the very end of the tribune story about this today they said it was it was kennedy one of the people on that panel was accusing alexi of political posturing here and then kennedy said well look the thing's already a law i you know i don't have any more political gain to make here but then at the end of the article they said Immediately after he testified, his campaign or his people put out a thing saying, rush money to his campaign because uh, they're going to try and take away the boat. You know, so they were immediately trying to cash in on his testimony. Speaking of schools, CTU President Stacey Davis Gates was on CNN last night talking about school choice and her family's decision to send one of her three kids to a private school. Uh, You may recall she has called private schools, among other things, segregation academies. She's labeled them racist institutions. Asked why send her child to one of those places, especially when she represents a union dependent on students going to public schools. She said, I didn't speak out against private schools. I spoke out against school choice. School choice and private schools are two different entities. In particular, she said that her son has a chance to play a sport at a private school not offered by the public one. The person interviewing her, Abby Phillip, didn't say when she said, I didn't speak out against private schools, I spoke out against school choice. I wish she had followed up there. I think Philip did a good job in the interview, but I mean, but the choice is for a private school. It seems to me like those things are quite tied together. What I thought was really interesting is that I think it kind of laid bare the lack of thought beyond sloganeering from Stacey Davis Gates when it comes to the morality of school choice. Essentially, what her position is, is that school choice is fine for me, but it is not okay for low-income people to have school choice. It's okay for me to send my child to a private school because I can afford it, but we cannot have a program in Illinois that allows low-income families to make the same choice. The school where her child is attending has five kids who are on scholarships from Illinois' Invest in Kids program, which is our flagship school choice program. It supports about 9,000 kids. Uh, which is way too small, but it's it means a lot for those 9,000 kids. There are nearly 300 of those students who are on the wait list to have the same opportunity that Davis, Stacey Davis Gates was able to give her child. So the problem here is not the fact that she is sending her kid to a private school. It is the fact that she is denying that chance. She is taking, not even just denying the chance for more kids to have that opportunity. She is killing, actively lobbying in Springfield to kill that opportunity, to kill investing kids this fall. Uh, while she's making that choice for her own family. 
And and the racial component of this, she brings up all of the time. And I thought the host did a very good job of neutralizing that. Clarence Page had a really good column today in the Tribune called uh, uh, Yes, Black Parents Like School Choice Too. And in that, uh, he takes the argument that Davis Gates makes, which is that school choice is a racist program and totally picks it apart. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, the people who were lobbying for the first school choice program in the country, the first voucher program in the country close to us in Milwaukee were black parents. Clarence Page tells the story of living in Washington, D.C. Black parents were the driving force behind having school choice in Washington, D.C. And when you ask Illinois voters, do you like the Invest in Kids program? Do you support or oppose? The group with the highest support for Invest in Kids is black voters. So making this an issue, as Stacey Davis Gates has, of people who support school choice are racist, anyone who disagrees with me is racist, uh, is completely false. And I think she's being finally taken to task for that. So I, I mean, I have to sort of push back on on how glorious this whole program is and of, of taking basically tax dollars that were going for uh, to support public education, using it to support private education, using it to support religious education. Uh, you know, the idea that these schools are are so much better because they don't have to take all the children who, who the, the public schools have to take. The public schools do are asked to deal with a lot of the pathologies that private schools don't have to to deal with. And when you have a situation where you've got people who would like to have their choice of hospitals to go to and they don't because they're poor and you say, well, if you if you believe in in going to Northwestern Hospital and you go there and you you want to deny poor people the right to go to Northwestern Hospital, you know, that's just it's kind of ludicrous at some point is saying that that because she has the, the money, she's got the means to send her child to private school. That means that everybody ought to be able to send their kids to private school. I just I just don't buy this idea that you can have this system of charter schools and vouchers and not just eviscerate public education. You're going to make these public schools worse. And what is it that makes them so bad? I mean, the idea behind this, the floating behind this seems to be that public school teachers are lazy, they don't care, and and that's why kids need to get out of there, that they don't know how to teach. I don't think that's true. And every and when I ask people, it's like, what is the secret sauce that a Catholic school has or a charter school has that a public school doesn't have? What is it? Why is it that they have better results on tests than a public school does? And, and the answer just seems to be, well, you know, the competition. That's what's making these, that the teachers are working harder at educating kids because they feel the pressure to compete with them. I don't buy that. I don't buy, I don't buy that uh, assessment of public school teachers at all. I, I don't buy that claim for the success of private schools. Eric is bringing up an argument that is probably the most common that we hear about investing kids in Illinois, and it's that this program takes money from public schools. But when you look at funding for public schools in Illinois, since this program was passed, it was passed by the legislature in 2017, I think the 2018-19 school year is the first year, you see $2 billion more in K-12 through private uh, public education in Illinois. Funding's gone up every single year. In Chicago public schools, uh, funding has gone up from about $17,000 a student just a few years ago to $29,000 per student today. Public school funding in Illinois does not go down. It only goes up. Public school funding in Chicago does not go down. It only goes up. This is a certain and this program, this program has not taken money from, from public schools because when it was passed, it was a compromise saying, listen, we're going to invest more money in public schools through this new evidence-based formula. Uh, but at the same time, there are families. It's not people saying they should leave public schools. It's not people saying, hey, public school is terrible. You should leave. It's parents saying, I would like to go to a different school. And it's the state saying, OK, we will give a tax credit for donations for that to make that happen. Yeah, I don't want my tax money going to support Catholic schools. It's nothing against Catholics. I just I just don't feel like my money should be going toward that that form of education. I think that it is up to the government for the for the state to provide schools for children to go to and every child should have a school that they can go to and that's and if their parents can uh, can afford better restaurants better health care better cars all those things i mean that's you know that's what society is all about and it's interesting to me that a lot of the people who are really in favor of school choice for whatever reason are not in favor of of uh of medical choice 
of having people. But I don't think that's true. There's there's things called health health savings accounts are 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 the same sort of concept, right? It's taking money that would go directly to a very large medical institution or something, and it's just giving it to patients and saying, "Hey, you can spend this wherever you want." It's private, though. Health health, health savings accounts are private. I mean, the thing, the idea that, that we have a certain amount of money that we're going to devote toward funding education, and I think it should all go to public schools. That's my opinion on that, and and I, you know, I don't, I don't, and I don't like the idea that you have these charter schools with the administrators being paid better than the public school administrators. Uh, I, and and there's little, very little accountability. On Why does that school. bother you? Why does it bother you that what? a private school administrator gets more? Because they're charter schools. There's some of them are public charter schools, and like Juan Rangel was making, you know, scads of money running these these charter schools, and they're kind of a racket. The idea behind charter schools was that they would be laboratories. That these are places where they could experiment with with educational ideas. Not that they would be Become permanent substitutes for for public schools, and essentially that's what they've become. They don't take ideas from charter schools, and, and they, I guess they take some, but that's not what they are anymore. They're just alternatives. And when you create a charter school, and then and then it leads uh, students from a, a public school, and the public school doesn't have enough resources to offer programs, then people turn around and say, "Well, look, the public schools are terrible. Let's get rid of them and and have all these charter schools and private schools and voucher schools." And I, I think it's backwards. I agree with everything that Eric says, and then I agree with everything that Austin says. Don't you hate and that? And I just I, I hate it. <laughs> Well, but if the conversation were more specifically about Stacey Davis-Gates, which is what took us down this road, if she were sending her kid to the public school, all three of her kids to the local public school, at least then her actions would be consistent with her words. And so is this really about Stacey Davis-Gates, or is this about, regardless of what you know, Stacey Davis-Gates says, um, this money is in peril for poor families that Austin's talking about, and Eric doesn't think it should be there anyway. So I'm, I, I think we've all kind of got caught up in the, the, the drama of Stacey Davis-Gates, who is very uh, articulate and likable and unlikable, and I haven't heard many discussions like we're hearing between Austin and Eric here. I'm surprised she did one. the interview, to be perfectly honest. I do. I was I think too. That's it, a story that I think had some momentum and was going away slowly. And <laughs> yeah, it would she, be nobody's news. And then it's brought up this debate again, which maybe it's a healthy one to be having. And uh, I'm just surprised that she was OK being the lightning rod for it. And I think the, re- the reason that her story is, is blown up is because maybe in part it, it's instructive in this whole debate because her posture is essentially we need more money in public schools. We need to improve public schools. We need to invest in public schools, right? Chicago and Illinois and the federal government invest a lot of money in Chicago public schools. There are Chicago public schools spending $30,000, $40,000 a student to educate them, but they're not getting a great education, as evidenced by the fact that families, especially black families, are leaving the city in part because of schools. Do you they think can't th- go to okay. a good neighborhood school. So, so the point here, I'll just finish th- this point, is... Stacey F. Skates is saying, hold on a second, guys. Wait, we need to fix the public schools. Meanwhile, I'm out of here. I'm getting I'm getting what's mine. I'm getting a good education for my kid. You guys wait there. You poor kids wait there. I'm going to take away scholarships that you're getting to escape that system right now. I don't have a beef my- with public schools as, a, you know, as an institution. It's it's it is a life raft and a skateboat for lots of kids right now. This program. It sounds like the reason why she chose a. Uh, chartered a private school for her for her uh, kid was more so athletics um, and athletic program options. That's what she said, and not yeah. so much academics. Yeah. So it's tough to just overall say, well, private schools provide better education, public schools don't. There's some great performing public schools out here. You know, like CPS has some great uh, public schools out here. Walter Payton consistently doing yeah. great. Well, yeah. selective um, enrollment, Whitney Young. Selective yeah, enrollment school, yeah, for, I mean, for they, sure. They but still, doing doing amazing, and we have some but, really smart. But even kids athletics out here. isn't that. A, I think it's a, a defi- Isn't that pointing out a deficiency of a public school that they don't have the athletic soccer ability to be able to do for something sure. like that? Right. For sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like not every public school is going to be able to have fencing or lacrosse. That's but, that's for sure. Uh, is yeah. Austin saying that if uh, say all kids went to everybody took a voucher and everybody went to a private school? Do you think that everybody would be getting a better education than Austin? But that's not what happens. People can use that money to go to a public school. They go to a public charter school. They go to a private school. You can use the the money however you want. You can go to your neighborhood school. The point is you get to pick your school. But to the point about the athletics, that's what... Here's one way to not be able to fund athletics. Have a school system where a third of your schools are at less than 50% capacity 
and then have a teachers union go to Springfield and lobby to not re reappropriate or re uh, refashion those schools to use them for something else or to close down schools and consolidate or to open new schools. There's a massive misallocation of resources in Chicago public schools towards these massive buildings, in part because of, again, advocacy from the teachers union. And Stacey Davis Gates is saying, you guys who don't have access to a to an athletics uh, facility, you wait another 10, 20 years. Maybe it'll get better if I get what I want. But in the meantime, I'm going to choose private school. One of our listeners said to me today in a text, well, you always get a better education at a Catholic school than the local public school. And that, that's not true. And if nothing else, the resources at the public schools, at least in the suburbs and in parts of the city, too, are better. There's just more. There's more for kids in public schools. Well, are, are people who live in the suburbs uh, and send their kids to these nice schools in the suburbs who don't want to expand voucher programs and charter programs into their communities. Uh, are, are they hypocrites? I mean, they're the ones who say, are they the ones who are saying this is for thee and not for, for me and not for thee? Because that's the feeling I get. I mean, there are instances, I think it was in Cleveland, where they were trying to to uh, allow kids to use their voucher money, their public school voucher money to go to you know the equivalent of Lincolnwood uh, or, or Oak Park. And people in in those kind of communities said, "Hell no, we don't. We don't. We we move to these services to get away from those people." I mean, essentially, that's what they were saying, right? So, I mean, that's one of the things when people talk sort of loftily about this idea of school choice, they don't really mean like, "Oh, you can come to our our community and you can come to our public schools." They they kind of want it to happen somewhere else, but doesn't they don't want it to happen in their in their neighborhoods for the most part? Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, but the the point being there is that those families have school choice. They move there and pay a ton of property taxes so that they can go to schools that they that are super well funded that they want to go to well so do, so do idea, wealthy, par- right? wealthy parents everywhere have school choice right i mean that's the way it exactly is. Um, right stacy davis gates makes good coin teachers union she's got school choice she she earned it right that's that's the suburban theory of life right I can see both sides, honestly. I'm not going to pick a side on this one, but I just a lingering thing that I mentioned last week is it just seems to me like if the most motivated parents and families leave the public schools, then the kids that will be left in those buildings, somebody's going to be in those buildings, will be the children with the least motivated parents, and it, it, it'll, it will be the most unfortunate schools that will be left. And I... You know, I don't want to force somebody's kid and family into an environment just to prop up everybody else, but I just don't like the the idea of thinning the academic herd because it's not just smart kids, but then it's engaged families. It's all the things you want a school to be, and if we cherry-pick the best students and families out of there, we're, we're guaranteeing that the lot left will have inferior opportunities. The outcomes will be inferior is 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 that a fair concern two, of mine? Two super quick things on that. One, there have been tons of studies on this overwhelmingly show that not only do kids get better outcomes at the private schools that they go to, but also kids who remain in the public schools have better academic outcomes and outcomes later in life. And we yeah. see that we see that in in Milwaukee as well as in other uh, places across the country that have had these programs for a long time. Second, those families vote with their feet now, so they just leave the city. Like those families are leaving. The question is, do you want them to choose another school or do you want them to leave altogether? So uh, I think it's a bit of a false choice. And now it gets more complicated because we have migrants coming into these schools. Mayor Johnson is proposing that we house them in giant framed tents, 500 to 1,000 people in these temporary buildings we're going to erect wherever we can find space. Uh, They look more like barracks inside. It's guessed this will cost the city $300 million this year. The cost of inaction, the mayor said, is greater than doing nothing. Uh, did I say that correctly? The cost of inaction. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to quote the mayor. I have it in quotes here. He said the cost of inaction will be greater than. But inaction is the same as nothing. That, that was like a Yogi Berraism. I know. The, co- the cost of inaction <laughs> will, will be, be greater, greater than, than doing nothing. nothing. If great. that's what he said, he said it wrong. But I think his point is that if the, the cost of inaction will be greater than – I think he said doing nothing. But I think I know what he meant. Anyway, Lori Lightfoot didn't like this idea of putting people in tents. Uh, Brandon Johnson doesn't generally care what Lori Lightfoot thought or did. So here we are now. We're going to put him maybe in these 
giant warehousey tent things. I, I don't like it. I don't like the sound of it, but it's better than the floor of a police station. I don't see how they're going to provide security and privacy for people who are in those in these massive barracks. Uh, and I don't see how they're going to necessarily be able to heat and cool them and keep them grounded during the weather in Chicago. It, it doesn't seem like an optimal solution. On the other hand, uh, yeah, I don't know, unless you take over a place like you know McCormick Place or one of these huge you know warehouse airplane hangar type buildings, I don't I don't know I don't know what you do. This is another time where I'm really glad I'm not the mayor because it cl- clearly there's a, a housing shortage crisis here, but you're not going to be able to build your way out of this. This problem is is growing by the day, and they need to do something right away. And as much as I don't like the idea of tents, I don't see a better alternative right now. I said on the radio today, I wonder what these people were thinking that did come here. We're doing the best we can, or at least this is what we're doing now. And it seems so inhumane. You know, we we, we weren't prepared for it. But I wonder what these people thought would happen when they came to Chicago without themselves a place to stay. Like, well, where are you going to stay? Well, I'm not sure they... I'm not sure they chose Chicago. I think they were shoved on a bus down in Texas and, and, and they weren't even told where they were going. Okay, but maybe the question would be the same then if they were in Texas. Maybe, I mean, where 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 do you think? It's not going to be optimal. It's not going to be optimal. You just showed up here without money or resources. So it's it's going to be some sort of ad hoc shelter somewhere, Texas or Illinois. Maybe you can see that as a measure of how bad things are where they came from and that they say, you know, anything is going to be better than this. Also, I think neighbors are complaining more than the migrants are. And I hate to say it like that, but our own Madison Saavedra at Block Club Chicago has been on this since day one, talking to a lot of migrants in their native language. And most of the people she talks to are very thankful for the help that they have gotten from local groups and local places, well, recognizing, of course, that it's not an ideal situation. So I think a lot of us, maybe it's out of our own guilt and how we feel that we're treating them, put it on them as a boy, they're complaining a lot or they don't like where they are. You know, I don't know if that's the words that are really coming out of their mouths. Uh, of course, they there's many of them. They think different things. I just I, I remember thinking what a stunt it was to bus people to different cities by Governor Greg Abbott. And I don't uh, out of Texas. And I don't say this very often, but there was almost a brilliance in the idea of making people who have a lot of thoughts about immigration that live thousands of miles away from the border experience what a lot of people near the border have experienced for years and federalizing this problem to hopefully eventually lead to a solution that will help everybody out. Um, Because I do find it very hypocritical when we complain about 13,000 migrants in a city of 3 million people versus a city like El Paso that is way smaller, that has way more migrants coming in. I know that doesn't get us any answer closer to a local answer, but I think it was an eye-opening thing to do for the rest of us to have to absorb this national problem. I definitely understand the frustrations people who live here in Chicago, especially on the south and west sides, have. And that's I think it's my concern with the tents. A lot of these are going to be on the south and west side where there's more vacant land. We have so many homeless people in this city, so many homeless kids in this city. All this time, we could have made tents and we, we didn't. Like, that that is the the elephant in the room like we have options we could have exhausted to help the homeless here in our own city and so people are understandably frustrated that wow uh you have the resources for others but not for those who uh, have lived here for decades and have struggled here for decades so uh, i'm i'm concerned and i hope that there's going to be some security measures there or something about tight intentions Around those tents, there's already been heightened tensions um, in black and brown communities around uh, the asylum seekers coming in and where they've been placed. And I think this is only going to raise those even more. It's not an ideal scenario, right? But I also look at it as like, what else can the city possibly do with this? There's not a bunch of buildings you can open up. There are a lot of buildings, though, right? Like, there's a lot of former schools that are sitting there. And like, I cannot believe that a year later, the solution is tents. Like what? I know he hasn't been in office the whole time, but what are you thinking? And now, now, to your point, he is asking every alderman to come up with a space, two acres in every single ward to try to distribute the problem. What about 
a building. I mean, maybe I'm being naive to, to see how quickly you can convert that and how much that's going to cost. That's the problem. But- yeah, I mean that's that's what I've heard. You say, hey, there's an empty office space in Chicago. Uh, I guess if it was raining, you could go in there and it wouldn't rain on you. But you you can't effectively live in just any old building. I mean, you've True. got to have plumbing. You presumably have uh, telephones or internet or computers and toilets and kitchens and not all yeah. of the buildings. Yeah, sanitation, yeah. food prep. You got if you're going to be in these buildings, you have to have fire uh, ingress and egress, those kind of things. I mean, they're, they're all kinds of problems with just converting office buildings and, and empty buildings like that you, you i mean a school building is a good example you have these sort of large rooms uh but they don't have showers and kitchens available for everybody it's it's uh it's not nearly as obvious as as i mean i, I just i think it's a, a a really naughty problem and and uh yeah. it, you know and again you know providing sanitation food prep security privacy all the kind of things that that human beings need uh storage space uh how do you do that in a big tent barracks i don't i mean maybe there's an answer but it seems like it's going to be a pretty darn expensive answer i think they estimate five million a month to maintain each of these tents that's that's wild yes. each tent each ward yeah probably because the number i saw was uh, a few hundred million dollars by year's end the city will end up spending on all of this and i also heard that only a third now of all of the refugees coming to, I think it's Axios that's reporting this, Chicago's expected to spend more than $255 million on the migrant crisis by year end. That's what Johnson told the city council. So far, the feds have given us $21 million for migrant services. So it's fantastically expensive as to where we put these people. I don't know if this uh, is a good idea or not? But I just when they were putting them, say, around Inglewood, um, which is a black community, I don't know how much Spanish is spoken there. But I was thinking, would it make sense to, if you do have land, at least put the migrants where Spanish is more frequently spoken? At least there wouldn't be a language barrier. At least it might make it easier for them to figure out how to live in the city and the city how to accommodate them. I continue to walk up and down the streets of Chicago in my daily comings and goings, and I still see groups, sometimes of 100 people or more, who have gathered on a street corner off of Michigan Avenue somewhere downtown, one of the side streets, and they're waiting for a food drop by some local church or community. Steve Bertrand, my colleague here at the radio station, lives north of the city, up by Deerfield, and at the uh, up in Deerfield off of one of the highway ramps, um, there was um, some people panhandling for money and food i people panhandling and expressway off ramps really <laughs> the point of that to Look, me was though day. that they had been a i know that but i was surprised that they had traveled that far eric you know it, it was weird to me to see how uncoordinated all of this is that they would be on a ramp up by deerfield speaks to how there is no plan for these people and i know we've talked about this the last few weeks but that's where i'm starting to get Maybe I should have all along been mad at Laurie Lightfoot or Brandon Johnson coming into City Hall. Like, dude, we need a plan and we need to do something about it. I, I think your your upsetness is is right. I think it's directed to the wrong people. I think it, this falls on President Biden and the federal government. Yeah, I mean, one hundred. I, mean, I mean, New York has a hundred thousand migrants, and now you're starting to see Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams both calling out President Biden by name. Well, can they? These wave are Democratic them? leaders, Austin. We could just change the rules, right? I mean. Instead of this 180 work, days, this work issue is a yeah. big one. Yeah, yeah the 180, 180 days. days. Is, is, and and to their credit, Illinois leaders have called for that to to change that, and I think that's great. And that's the only long term solution to this kind of let's call it transitory poverty that there is. Let people work. That is how immigrants have come to this nation for hundreds of years. They come here and they work and they make a better life for their family and they want to work and they want to work legally. So that that's definitely number one. The local responsibility, I think in some part, though, still, and this was brought up by uh, by Alderman Ray Lopez at the last city council meeting, the local decision that was made to make Chicago a sanctuary city may have invited some of this. And it puts the city in a in an uncomfortable situation of saying, we're not going to enforce these federal rules, no matter what you think of that, good or bad, but then we're going to ask for the, the federal government for a lot of money 
to help us when there's a lot of people coming to our city and we don't have the resources to take care of them. That is that is an uncomfortable position, especially in, if that administration changes hands and it's a Republican administration in a few years. Good luck getting help. Um, so I do. I I, I think the uh, the response from local leaders is going to be to blame this up the chain all day because they really don't have any solutions, uh, you know, and there is some blame to go around at, at the federal level, for sure. One thing about the workers, because I've always been in favor of get rid of that 180 day thing. I, the one thing the Biden administration, well, they haven't said anything about this. What people inside the Biden administration, their worry is if you change that then you're going to have a surge of people, more people coming because they know that then they get to get a job on day one if they claim asylum and go somewhere, which I don't think is I still would be in favor of getting rid of that. But it's not a um, completely baseless point to make. Yeah, although it is kind of ironic because we need more workers and we need right. more workers in the fields that they would be able to work where language isn't an issue where previous skill isn't a great issue some of them would be skilled workers anyway but i mean wow could we use them and yet we put this six-month stopgap and then we all fret about tents this is a problem of our own creation in some sense we knew they were coming speaking of the federal government the way mitt romney is not going to run for re-election to the senate he says it's time to get some new blood in there the Wall Street Journal this week asked people who were born on Joe Biden's birthday, November 20th, 1942, if the president is too old to run. They literally found people that share the exact same birthday as Joe Biden. And they said, OK, Mr. and Mrs. 80-year-old, how are you doing? And do you think, they asked them specifically that question, do you think Joe Biden is too old to run? And by and large, they all said no. He's not too old to run. But then they said things like, but you know, a lot of my friends have dementia. Or we are all starting to go down fast, physically, mentally. So it's a concern. They also did not like the idea because some of them are still very active and some of them are still working. And they don't like the insinuation that just because you're 80, we got to park you somewhere on the sidelines of society. Uh, Having said all of that, Joe Biden's going to run. Donald Trump won't be but two years younger than him if he gets reelected or I guess, yeah, reelected. Well, Mitt Romney is 76, right? So he doesn't want to run again because he feels that he's too old and needs new blood. I have long said that I admire what Joe Biden has done for the most part as president. I think he, at the very least, provided a nice stopgap from Donald Trump. And I think that the promise that the implicit promise I thought of electing him was he was going to be a bridge to the future for the Democratic Party. And he has not decided he wants to be that he wants, you know, there's the lure of staying president is keeping him there. I wish that he wouldn't. I think he is too old. I think that is Having said that, I would vote for him in a heartbeat over anybody on that Republican stage. So, uh, yeah, and I think that that's what this is going to boil down to is that people are going to see this as a choice and they're going to say, well, um, I've got my choice of Joe Biden, who's uh, lost a lot off his fastball, but he's not Donald Trump or he's not Vivek Ramaswamy or he's not Mike Pence. And that's going to be uh, the, the way people decide this race. But, yeah, is he too old? Yeah, he's too old. He is too old, maybe. He is too old. But maybe some other person born on the same day might not be too old, right? I, you know, maybe. I mean, at that age. You have, first of all, I mean, all kinds of things can happen to you, all kinds of information. One of the things when we talk about this election next year, we've got two old men. Donald Trump's health profile can't be all that good. <laughs> well. Look, I, mean, I, know, I know he's a lean, mean 215 pounds. But not. <laughs> oh, and, God. So anything could happen with either of these, these two guys. I mean, I think it's a job for a younger person. I really do. I, I think it's a job for a younger person than Biden is right now. I, I, would, put an, I would put an age limit on president. I think 75 is not an, an outrageous age limit for president yeah uh, but that that's and and you know and i'm 65 so i don't you know i'm not uh, i mean i can be ageist i guess because i'm i'm one of them so well uh, let me just uh, insert this uh, the latest quinnipiac poll or is it quinnipiac i'll ask that every quinnipiac. time um asked is joe biden too old all americans 69 percent say joe biden is too old 
all Americans as just, this, just as a person or to be president. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Better that he not be anymore. <laughs> uh, it's shorthand for president, Austin. Thank you for clarifying that. And asked the same question about Donald Trump. 63% said Trump was too old to be president. So 69, 63. About the current president, 90% of Republicans said he's too old for that office. 43% of Democrats said he's too old for that office um okay just wanted to get that he just talks softer i don't i really think that's one of the major things Mm, yes it's a lot more than that no it's not because i watch every press conference every q a every back and forth the mind is still there you may disagree with everything that comes out of his mouth but I feel like he's being overhandled. I wish he'd do more Q&As, more off-the-cuff stuff. We'll go back to your comments about Joe Biden and all of that. But Pete just bolted in here because he handed me this this poll. And I, I'm reading it as I now see. Uh, okay, all Americans, uh, do you think Joe Biden is too old to effectively serve another four-year term as president? All Americans said 69% of us said Biden's too old. Uh, when they asked all voters... Um, about Donald Trump, 63% said that Donald Trump is not too old to effectively serve another four-year term as president. So that means it's what ex- 69 what versus 37. What begins to explain that? I, in a foot race, I would take Biden over Trump. Uh, and in an IQ test, I would take Biden over Trump. What is it that makes you? I mean, he's he's what? He's louder. He has more energy. That's it. But I no, I think the mistake here is thinking that the people who say Joe Biden is too old to be president, therefore think Donald Trump should be president. These are these are these are parallel tracks. I don't think those people go. Therefore, it should be Donald Trump. Uh, no, I, I think there's a lot of Democrats who would say, therefore, you should have a different nominee, though, right? Isn't that the yeah, whole- absolutely. Right, right, right. Absolutely, but, it, but, yeah. but not Donald Trump. I mean, that's that, that's no vote of confidence for Donald Trump's mental ability or physical ability or age either, Eric. I, I, it sounds like you're saying if if this, then that. And I don't think. Well, I'm, all I'm saying is that if you, if you hold Joe Biden's age against him, you should also be holding Donald Trump's age against him. These are <laughs> these are men. Both both of these guys are going to be in their 80s. If, if they're both the nominee, if, if, then they're going to both be in their 80s. I don't know, Eric. It doesn't seem to be the, be the number. It's the behavior. Joe Biden acts more feeble than Donald Trump does. It is tough to watch Joe Biden give a speech. It is very tough. You or have tell to, like, a story. I'm like talking to the TV like, get the word out. Come on. You got this. It, it's it's not cool. I just yell, edit, edit. You know, you don't, you don't need that anecdote. You're, it's not going to serve you here. It did 15 years ago. And and that seems so inconsiderate to a lifelong stutterer who's suffered all sorts of humiliations and agonies in his life. And I mean, I can have a lot of sympathy for and I can like Joe Biden. Look, what is the job of president, but also being a great communicator? That's a big part of the job. And he is not that anymore. I really miss Barack Obama. That man could give a speech. Uh, We are long away from that. I hate that the conversation becomes age so much. I don't like ageism, but I mean, the truth of the matter is, yeah, there should be some age limits. We're, we're getting to a point. You see what's happening with Dianne Feinstein, um, with, with Mitch McConnell. Like we got all these ancient people making decisions. They're outdated and it's just, it doesn't serve them well. It doesn't serve the country well. So I'm, I am pro age limits and term limits for all of these elected offices because I just think it's it's getting out of hand. And How much power do you want to strip out of voters' hands? How much power do you want to take away from voters? I don't think it's about stripping anything out of voters' hands. We yes, have you a, are. We have You're telling them who they we, can or can't vote for. We have a limit to what age you have to be to run for these offices. So why That's can't we have too. an age? Yeah, oh, really? So we, so we you should think, have 18-year-olds uh, running for president? <laughs> why not? <laughs> I don't. I think there's a lot of reasons. You can to vote for him. You can to vote for him, yeah or nay. So you, so you just say, free willy, you know, let's just all... Yes. Everybody go for it. I am... Very opposed to that. When you say vote for free Willie, you don't mean the whale, right? You're talking about anybody, or will, and not Willie Wilson either. Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking about anybody. <laughs> it, it does bother me just because we see little. Cl- I mean, we live in an age where we look at a little clip on Twitter, where a news channel takes a little clip, and there are obvious moments. It looks like Joe Biden. If you take a moment and look at it, he looks like he doesn't know where he is or where he's going, and 
if you watch the full minute and a half of it, yeah. you did get a different interpretation. And we just are not built for that anymore to sit and watch an entire Q&A from a man who just was up for like 36 out of 39 hours trusting the, the world and was answering geopolitical questions with very with ease. And yeah, knew the answers. And it's a little slower. And it, you're right. It's not as palatable. It is not as communicative. But I don't. That's not why I would vote or not vote for someone. And I and to the voters credit, I don't think and to your point, John, that is why people will ultimately vote the way they vote. And yeah, but if you had a chance to vote for Pete Buttigieg or the governor of California or or the, the senator from Minnesota or somebody who could cut through on the Democrat side, wouldn't you prefer them for their mental, physical, communicative abilities. They're going to give you the Democrat stamp you want. So wouldn't you prefer that to, if not Joe Biden, at least the way Joe Biden presents, John? I think that for Democrats who enjoy having a Democratic president, you go with the person who beat the guy you don't want already once. That's been sort of the view of like the James Carvilles of the world where who were just like, we're on team winning Democrats and we have not like this is going to work. But where I think it does one interesting wrinkle this time around is to what extent can the opposition claim with credibility that a vote for Joe Biden is actually a vote for a Kamala Harris term. And so there's been yeah. a lot more <laughs> yeah. conversation now about That's a big what, one. What, what is his vice presidential uh Who's who's his vice president going to be? I think it would be crazy to think that he would make that switch, especially with black voters who are like, what? So you just dumped Kamala like when it wasn't useful for you? Like, what? Are you serious? So that's definitely a consideration. But you could see I I just read an article yesterday. There's a big case for what about a Gretchen Whitmer? She's in a battleground state. She's, uh, you know, she doesn't have as many uh, unfavorables as or unfavorables are as high as as Kamala. Do you look at someone like that? But. I think the vice president question is going to be a lot more relevant this time around than it was last time. Well, it already is. They're already, they're already talking that way in the Republican campaign circles that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. And Harris is not a very popular vice president. And uh, it, it could it, – these are things on the margins that could depress Democratic turnout. I don't think it's going to, someone who's going to vote for Biden is going to go, well, I'm going to vote for Trump instead. But they might stay home. Uh, if they're if they're not inspired, there is I think zero chance that Biden would dump Kamala Harris just for the reason that Austin said that that you know that black voters it would look it would have a really bad look. You might think about like swapping her out for a Cory Booker or someone like that, another another black politician. But I, I just don't see. Wow, that looks even worse. Well, it does, yeah. he's he's got his own. That's problem. like when band like indie rock bands just get a different female bass player. And like, <laughs> forget about it. It's the same as before. Wow, Austin I, didn't well, see that coming. Thank you. The last point I make is I think the best thing for this country would be if Joe Biden and Donald Trump did not run and we had fresh slates of candidates. One hundred percent. That one hundred percent. I that's I just want to make that clear. To, yeah. to be specific about a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. You're suggesting that he doesn't survive the, the term, not that he steps aside or something like that. Or so that, that it's maybe. a reasonable fear. I think it's a reasonable fear for a guy of that age. And I, and I do want to kind of go back to what John had said about, you know, beating, choosing a guy to beat Trump. I think it's fair to believe that election happened in a vacuum, you know, that people were looking for the guy that can beat Trump. Um, I don't think Joe Biden inspired many people. No. I don't think he inspired many Democratic voters. I think what they were inspired by was who can beat Donald Trump. After four years and we see your record and we're still not inspired and you see some of these younger generations coming up who are now voting age, I think it's fair that that may not be able to happen again. I, I still think Trump loses head to head, but Latest it might poll be a has little tighter this time. 47, 46 over that same poll taken by that company that starts with the letter Q. 47% Biden, 46% Trump. It's not enough probably to win the Electoral College for a Democrat. Well, Romney was up eight points at this point in 2014. Uh, uh, 
That's or true. These polls don't really matter 12, right now. 2012, 2011, 2012. Mondale was winning, and Mondale lost 49 states. It's too bad, though, because I think Biden has done a good job. Biden can't sell it. I think that Biden handles has handled a lot of things well for which he gets very little credit. I mean, it's amazing how bad his numbers are considering yep. the things that this administration has been able to accomplish. We will talk more like this when we are all on stage. We will talk more like this next week when we record another edition of The Mincing Rascals. And then on the 26th, we'll be on stage at Second City. We'll put Eric and Austin on different sides of the stage, though, just <laughs> so they can get a better shot at each other. We'll be up there from 6 to 8 o'clock, and it'll be the five of us. So I'm glad that... Uh, we were all able to chime in here this week and that we will all be able to chime in. Um, I still think we should all either wear rust-colored blazers with a patch, like the Action 7 news team, <laughs> or we should do like they do on that Fox morning chit-chat show where they all wear a beautiful different colored dress. We won't wear dresses. But like, I'll go with a solid green. Austin, you wear a yellow. You know, let's yeah. all have big, bright, bold colors. I don't want to embarrass you guys. I got great legs. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, work it. Work it. It's going to be visual. We're not used to that. Austin just said, what, what did you have planned, Austin? I have uh, Groucho glasses is what I was planning. <laughs> Good. Good. Everybody should have a signature look. I guess that's all I'm asking for here. Okay. It, it'll be sponsored by Allied First Bank. It is sponsored by Allied First Bank. We appreciate them making that happen. And, guys, we'll talk next week, and we will see everybody on stage on the 26th. Get your tickets at WGNRadio.com slash rascals. Okay, fellas. Well done. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Later. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, boys. See you guys. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.